5 says, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his own property in their towns, Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and the sons of Benjamin. Of the sons of Judah, Athahiah, the son of Uzziah, son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephatiah, son of Mahalalel, of the sons of Perez. And Mattathiah, the son of Baruch, son of Jose, son of Hazaziah, son of Adiah, son of Joelib, son of Zechariah, son of Shilonite, all the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468,000 men. And that's all the ayahs I'm going to say today. May God bless the reading of the word. You may be seated. start today by asking a hypothetical question of everyone here. And uh, of course, think of the answer to yourself as I ask it. If you could live in any city in the world, where would you live? If you could live in any city in the world, where would you live? If money or travel really wasn't an issue, where would you settle and why would you settle there? Of course, there are lots of options for us to think about. Maybe some of us, as uh, I brought up that question, thought about how we'd like to settle in the mountains around Asheville, with the beauty of the mountains and even the arts community for some who are interested in that. Maybe some of us would go the other way. Some of us want to settle in the beaches. Uh, perhaps your beach people, the Outer Banks, Sunset Beach, the Quiet Beach, Myrtle Beach, uh, a big party all the time. Anyway, in every beach there's a lot of play. Maybe some of us would want to go to the big city. You'd want to go to New York City. Maybe you'd want the hustle and bustle, the culture, kind of the 24-hour life that goes on in that great city. Some of us may want to go to a place like Hawaii or Costa Rica, which, as we all are familiar with, uh, are really, in very many ways, a taste of paradise. Some of us, they want to go to a place like Paris, or where my daughter is right now, Florence, Italy, where you get a load of culture, great food, extraordinary art and history, all in a, in a small area. And yet some of us who are here today may just want to live in a small place like Union County, North Carolina, with small cities, spread out land, farms, Places to hunt for the hunters among us. Whatever the case, all of us here care about the city we live in, and we even have visions about the city we might want to live in in the future. Our question today around this very fact is very simple. What kind of city is God looking for? What kind of city is he building and is one that is best for his children, his people, 
who call his son Lord of all? That's our question for today. And in Nehemiah 11, we're going to look at the city that God was in process of building in Nehemiah's time. It was the holy city of God in Jerusalem. And, and what we're going to see here in this, this uh, particular chapter are the key characteristics that make up God's kind of city. God's kind of place that he's building. And what that's got to do with where we live now and where we're going to live in the future. Let's remember the context. God called Nehemiah to come and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem uh, around what was really a destroyed city. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians came in and utterly destroyed Jerusalem, uh, raising it to the ground, R-A-Z-E, to the ground. And in the last few chapters, we've seen how God, not only through Nehemiah, rebuilt the city's walls, but started to rebuild the people of the city. And as a result, in this rebuilding, they were doing one thing that really is a rhythm you find throughout Scripture, rebuilding the city of God. Now, the idea of the city of God goes throughout Scripture. The first city of God that was built, that was begun, was actually back in Genesis 1 through 3 with Adam and Eve, a place called Eden. And though there were only a few people there at the time, that was indeed supposed to be the genesis of the great city of God that was spread throughout the world. Of course, we know in Genesis 3, God not only established Eden, but the city fell when Adam and Eve fell. It was, if you will, changed. Then, as the chapters of the Bible continue, we find that God started rebuilding a city in Canaan later on with a guy named Abraham, a childless guy named Abraham, along with his wife, Sarah. God began rebuilding a people in this family. And this loosely formed family, or moving city of that time, made its way to Egypt and actually settled for hundreds of years. They exploded in number while they were in Egypt, as Exodus teaches. Well, in the process, Pharaoh enslaved them. And this city within a larger city of Egypt uh, with Pharaoh uh, needed deliverance. So God delivered the city of God's people as a holy nation from uh, uh, Egypt and to, eventually, 40 years later, the promised land of Canaan. Israel then conquered, and with David as their king, they built up Jerusalem as their center of life worship. It was the city that God chose to bless above all other cities in the world at that time. Until, of course, we know catching up in, but right before Nehemiah's time, God judges the city of Jerusalem for their unfaithfulness, the way they worshiped other gods. Hence, he allowed and used Babylon as a source of judgment against them. And, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar came in and blew it away process. To say Jerusalem was a mess as a city after uh, what had happened in Nebuchadnezzar's raising it to the ground was an understatement. In fact, I've compared um, Jerusalem in that time to present-day Detroit. 
It was not a destination city for people to live. In fact, it was a bit of a ghost city. And to show you kind of how radically it had, how radically it had changed, you know, right before Jerusalem had been destroyed in 586, it was at, at its peak roughly 150,000 people prior to the exile. After the exile, after it had been totally destroyed, there may have only been, right before Ezra and Nehemiah broke the laws of God came, there may have only been like 10,000 people there, maybe. I mean, think about that. A city, like kind of the center city of, of Charlotte, totally obliterated nobody there for a decade, over a hundred years, and only a few people living there at once, it would really be a sad sight. That's where Nehemiah came in. He came in, and he knew that the city couldn't exist without building a wall around. They needed protection in order to begin rebuilding it. So they rebuilt the outside of the city and then started working their way into rebuilding the inside of the city. But there was one thing that was distinctly missing from rebuilding the city. And Nehemiah 11 tells us uh, really what was missing in the first verses. Look at these first verses. And the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in other towns. What's going on here? Well, here's the deal. The, the city went from 150,000 plus living inside the city and around it to basically nobody being there. They needed more people. And this is the first of five pillars that God shows us in this text that he uses to rebuild a city. He repopulates the city with more people. He repopulates the city with more people. So let's look at a map of what, of what, how this worked. So real quickly, the people uh, were in Jerusalem, had rebuilt the wall, but there was nobody really living there. So what they had to do is they actually started gathering people by casting lots and, and, and calling people to move to the city to help repopulate it. One in ten is what it says in our text. And those people came from all around Jerusalem. From the south, which is Judah, they came from places like Bethlehem and these other places as well to repopulate. Not only that, they came from the north, north of Jerusalem and to the west is a place, is a tribe called Benjamin. And uh, those folks came back from the exile and they helped repopulate the city as well. Not only that, our text goes on to say there were Levites, that is the uh, religious leaders who actually um, lived in all the cities and didn't have any land to themselves, they came from the cities back into Jerusalem. This was how they chose to repopulate the city. Now, before we go too far, we must know that the, there was an odd way that they called the people to actually go to the city, isn't it? Because you see in our text, they were casting lots. Now, wow, were they casting lots? What is that about? I mean, does that mean they were trying to be kind of the Las Vegas of their times? Everybody's getting on the craps table. They're taking their dice and shooting them on the craps table. And who's going? No, that's not what casting lots is about. Casting lots is a way that in God's providence and in that culture they used to make a decision. And particularly to make a decision between 
two good decisions or two good people, perhaps. People that kind of believe so much in the providence of God that they believe that they could, so to speak, flip a coin between two good decisions, either one you win with, and God would answer what his choice was through providence and the flipping of a coin. Now, this seems a little strange to us, but you have to understand, sometimes you face those kind of decisions, don't you? You have a decision to choose. You have two good decisions you can make, or in some cases, even with Captain Locke, two bad decisions. You just have to choose the worst, the, which one of them. So, casting lots, if you will, was a providential way to decide on what was best for someone to go to the city or not. And the two good decisions for them was well, you can either stay home with your family or you can go to this new city that the king of of Persia was pumping serious money into as it was new, being newly built. So, they saw the call of God to live in Jerusalem as coming in God's providence, not luck, which we often think casting lots might be about, or even flipping a coin. Now, if God is in control of even what happens with the lots or the, or the, the flipping of a coin, what can we learn from all? Well, sometimes when you have two good decisions to choose from, you can flip a coin and trust in God's providence. Now, let me pre preface that. When making decisions according to God's will, you have to do the due diligence of thinking through it, of thinking about consequences, doing the whole nine yards, pros, cons, whatever. Even consider what you want to do in your heart. But if you're like, I could go this way and I could go that way, flip a coin and trust in God's providence in the decision-making process. But there's something bigger in this text to consider. And the bigger thing has to do with this first pillar of repopulating the city of God. Don't you get what's going on here? This text is all about the call of the church to evangelism, to gathering people into the kingdom of God because our God is a gathering God who gathers some of the most unexpected people in providential ways as people share the gospel. Our job is to go out and talk about Christ with our family, with our friends, with our friends at work, to find winsome ways to do it, to listen first, then speak, but watching God providentially draw them into his kingdom and in a living relationship with Christ. That's the picture that Blair read about in Isaiah chapter 2 a little earlier. This whole picture is people coming from all over to the mountain of the Lord. As the word went out, as the gospel went out, people came. That's the picture of what we do in the church today and what is applicable to us even now. You know what's beautiful about this text as well? It's just a little insight into it. In the listing of all the towns that this chapter has, a few of the towns weren't in Judea, and they weren't in Benjamin. They were actually well beyond the borders of Israel. And you know why they're listed there? To point out that there are people beyond where we live who need the gospel. That's why we do missions. That's why we do missions not just here with our friends and family, but over there. We send resources, we send uh, missionaries, we send people to be a part of sharing the gospel in other places. 
Acts 1-8 is going on in this text. You know, we share the gospel and we are witnesses for Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. That's how we repopulate the city of God now. Second pillar used to rebuild the city was reordering the city with leadership. Reordering the city with leadership. Look at verse 3 with me. It says, These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their town. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem, there's certain of the sons of Judah and the sons of Benjamin. Notice that the leaders and chiefs of the province of Persia were to make their home in Jerusalem. That is the Jews who were leading on behalf of the king. And here they're talking about civil authority who would run the, the daily business of the city, even the protection of the city and the defense of the city. But the religious authorities were also listed here and were called to live in the midst of the city as well. The priests, the Levites, the temple servants, maintenance workers, the gatekeepers, those are the guys with the swords that if you came too close to the temple, they'd say, don't come any closer. Jerusalem would need, in other words, infrastructure for there to be uh, solid worship, solid truth, even solid provision for God's people. In other words, the job of these people was to rule the community with security, with worship, and provision. Now, what can we learn about this for the church today? Well, it's clear that God has ordained in every era of God's people in the Bible a structure of leadership. Uh, he put structure over his kingdom. And um, in fact, in, in, in our text, God sets up a structure for the theological security, faithful worship, and appropriate provisions for the people. And in today's New Testament church, in our time, that looks like elders and deacons in the church. Elders and deacons. These are the offices that God has put over this era, the final era before Jesus comes back, over the church. Uh, God assigns um, elders and deacons to be the spiritual authority over the church. The, the elders being primarily the spiritual authority over the spiritual needs of the people with using word and prayer. The deacons being authorities in the use of, of uh, how we use resources, what we do with property, a whole host of taking care of the needs of our people in very material and practical ways. So that's kind of the what we have as, as our structure today in the church. And I might add, we're in this nomination season as a church. It is very important that if you're a member of Redeemer, you pray for these guys. Take time in your time with the Lord as a family, couple, individually with other Christians to pray for that next batch of guys uh, who might be elders and deacons in our church because it is very important that we honor the men whom God is calling up to lead by giving them an opportunity to explore their call. Consider who you might nominate in the coming weeks. Not only that, there's more to apply in our text. The city was split up into roles and responsibilities. Not only do officers have roles in the church, but also all of us have roles and responsibilities in the church. As we've said in our new members class very regularly, all of us is always better than one of us. 
All of us laboring for the kingdom is better than one of us. If you're a member of this church, you need to ask, what is God calling you to do for the kingdom with your time, talents, and treasure? And don't, don't forget the one of one here. Have one ministry where you're focused on getting fed and uh, you, you're getting in some way exhorted, encouraged in your relationships with other Christians in this church, but also have that one thing that you do to serve the church with your talents uh, and with your time so that the church can be built up. That's what you see happening in our text, the mobilization of people with their unique roles and responsibilities in the church. I don't know if any of you guys heard this past week about Mary Kate Smith. Mary Kate is a busy senior at South Jones High School in Mississippi. See, Mary uh, Kate is in her uh, is in process of uh, being not only a star soccer player, but she was voted to be the uh, homecoming queen of South Jones High School in the last week or so. And this coming Friday night will be their homecoming. It's a big deal for their school, of course. However, what you may not know about Mary Kate, she's not only a star soccer player and the homecoming queen in the next few weeks, she is also the star kicker for the football team. She's doing all three. And their team is frankly so bad that, uh, well, that's not the way I wanted that to come out. So uh, uh, she's great. Team's pretty bad. She's doing a great job uh, holding the fort. She stood up and stepped up to do something because the team needed help. And she said it's intimidating to be out there. It's different from soccer where you got these big guys who are 200 pounds heavier than she is coming right at her trying to knock her down. That's a different feeling than kicking a soccer ball. Nonetheless, Mary Kate stepped up to serve in her school in a unique way. It happens to have the glory of being a homecoming queen as well. Well, guys, that's true for all of you. All of us here may not be homecoming queens. Definitely not me. <laughs> and all of us may not be star soccer players or star football players or kickers. But each one of us have a role we're being called to step up into in our church. Uh, it is often true that 80% uh, of the people do 20% of no, 20 of the people do 80% of the work in a church. And what we want at Redeemer is more and more serve in your small way, whatever that looks like, to help make the loaves more meaningful. Third pillar that we find in our text today is that God establishes uh, 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 this crucial piece to restoring the city in verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me. It says this. All the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. Did you hear that? You hear that little descriptive uh, word describing the men of Perez? They were valiant. That is, they were outstanding. They were men of substance. They were talented. They had character and abilities. They were godly. The interesting thing is about chapter 11 is this is expanded throughout the chapter. If you jumped over to verse 8, it will call the sons of Benjamin men of valor. Valor being courage under fire. And then in verse 14, it tells of uh, Amishai and his brothers uh, called them mighty men of valor. That is mighty being strong, courageous. What is 
is that it talks about these men as valiant or men of valor, mighty men of valor. Why does it keep upping the ante and highlighting them? Well, here's the key, guys. Character, courage, and spiritual fortitude are absolutely necessary to being a part of building the kingdom of God. And especially if you're going to be about restoring a place or a person to a place of knowing God and following Jesus in any way. By rebuilding the capital of Jerusalem in Judah in this time, all of these leaders were putting themselves in the bullseye of surrounding enemies. Remember, Sanballat and Tobiah from chapters back, even the nations around were threatening and doing propaganda campaigns to try and place fear in the people. These guys knew when they were going, they were putting themselves in harm's way and in danger. And here's the truth for being a Christian. Increasingly in our world and in our time, there is an element of danger in following Jesus. There is an element of danger if you Been fell to the ground 
And as he fell on the ground with everyone watching, his last words were, in the name of Christ, stop. A hush fell into the Coliseum. A man of the upper parts of the Coliseum stood up and left. Another stood up and left. Slowly but surely, in silence, one after the other, the people left. That was 391 uh, AD, and that was the last battle to the death in the Colosseum with gladiators and Rome. Telemachus, with character and courage, with utter fortitude, stood up. And it changed the world. We live in a world that is and will be increasingly hostile to our Christian faith and values. I don't want to create paranoia. Nevertheless, we must be sober about our times. We will be tested in families and the marketplace. And while we don't go out looking to pick fights, Sometimes the fight will come to us. And so that's where we have to go to the fourth pillar that's in our text today. Realizing how different we are to be as the church before uh, the world. The fourth pillar in our text today is uh, to build up the city of God comes in, the, in a few verses. In verse 1, it says in verse 1, this interesting little thing. They cast lots to bring one out of the ten to live in Jerusalem. The holy city. <laughs> Jerusalem, the holy city. Holiness. Holiness means that as a people, we are set apart to live differently and even live differently together. We are called to live to God, as the Puritans once said. What does that mean? What does that mean in 5th century uh, Judah? What does that mean today for us where we live? Well, it means we do relationships differently. We do conflict differently as Christians. It means we do our work differently as Christians. It means we do marriage and family with things like sacrificial giving love, not love with a hook. We do money differently in our generosity, not only the kingdom, but to the poor. Dare I say it, we do sex differently. States, for example, or perhaps another nation, if you're on the green card. 
And as citizens here, we honor the laws here with holiness. However, there is a law that is much larger than, than the, the one of our land, one that we uh, finally bow to, and that is God's himself. And we are citizens of a kingdom that transcends everything we see in this world, a citizenship that is based in heaven, with God as our final and ultimate allegiance. What I mean by that is this, is that we in the church have a spiritual kingdom we're a part of right now. Uh, the church does not equal America. When you read your Bible, don't think when it's talking about a nation, it's talking about America. It's actually talking about the church. As 1 Peter 2 says, we are a holy nation, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We are sojourners and exiles in this world. Israel does not equal uh, the kingdom. Even today, though Jerusalem certainly is a pointer in Scripture to what an ultimate kingdom would be like. More of that in a second. We are a transcultural people who are grounded in heaven with God and Christ as our Lord and King. And that's freedom. Because Jesus didn't come just to save a certain nation. He came to save people from every tongue, tribe, nation. He had a vision bigger than our little world and sphere of influence and even nationality. He had a vision for the entire world. Our Christ think big. Think big with him. As a citizen of heaven, even while you serve as a citizen of this nation. This brings us to the last pillar in our text. The last pillar where the restored city leads us to a city that is to come. In our text, it talks about how this city is being restored overall as a holy city with a holy people. We are headed to a new Jerusalem as a people. The final Eden in the new heavens and the new earth. You see, Jerusalem in, in this time in the scriptures was a type of city, a picture, a closest word picture in that time of what a city of God would look like, but it was even fallen then. And would be later on even in Jesus' time. Abraham himself looked for another city even beyond the Jerusalem here. Turn with me for a moment to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. An important text to talk about the real city we are pursuing. A greater city in our future as Christians. Starting in verse 9, it says this. By faith he, that is Abraham, went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents, with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For check this out. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Jump down to verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are, see they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, 
They desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And that city is in heaven. The new Jerusalem, where God is most acutely settled. And his vision for the future is simply this, that the new Jerusalem will come down from God out of heaven and land on this earth when Jesus returns. And the city that God is looking for is where Jesus is Lord finally and fully in every way. A new heavens and a new earth, a resurrected world where he is Lord. Jesus is the one who gathers and repopulates his kingdom through us in the Great Commission. Jesus is the one who is full of courage and fortitude that he would go to the cross and bleed and die for broken people like you and me who are thinking about our little city rather than the grand city that awaits. Jesus is the one who says, come. Come to the mountain of the Lord, the city of God, and taste what it's like to live in true vibrancy, pure holiness, Greatness and glory with ultimate freedom of heart before God because Christ has made us new. This is the city of God that God is looking for, and our taste of it is right now in the church. The question for you and me today is really simple Are you walking, working, hoping in the Christ? who has got a city for you in his church even now and ultimately and fully in the heavenly city with him, the new Jerusalem. If you're not a believer today, my question to you would be, what city are you living in and where are you going? What city are you looking for? And is that really enough for what you need in life? Build your life by faith in Christ, by faith in the Redeemer. Believers, if you're struggling with the city of God, a city of man on this earth, let me tell you, don't settle for this worldly city. Labor here, be faithful in your hard work, don't pull out, stay engaged. Stay engaged with the world and love in your vocation as well, but pursue the ultimate city. You're not going to find heaven on earth in your family, in Indian Trail, Lord knows, not in Jesus, we praise you that you have called us to a city that's far beyond any of our wildest dreams. And today we ask you to give us a vision for a heavenly city as our ultimate destination because we want to know where we're going. Lord, comfort our hearts and lead us to live with fortitude in the midst of our struggles to build your city, even as a church. We pray you bless those efforts. As we reach out to the world, as we labor to care for the needs of our own and even those beyond our walls, 